As we head into the Word, how many of you are, well, first of all, here we are, Sojourn Campus Church. So if you peek out the window on this side, past the fraternities in the YMCA, what do you see? Anybody know? Roughly. Other than snow, Lee, other than snow. What's over there? The University of Minnesota. Thank you, Matt, graduate student. Yes, okay. Very good, yeah. All right. And if you look out this way, past the parking lot, what do you see? The University of Minnesota. Yeah, hockey, but yeah, okay, right. All right, yeah, hockey arena, right? Not the main one, all right? So here we are plopped in the middle of the U of M, and as Keith has alluded to, that creates parking problems. Why are we here? So to get at that, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, there was a group of students in the late 1700s that were praying, and they were getting mocked by other students. And so they would kind of pray outside, and then one day it was raining, so they hid under a haystack. Heard of the haystack prayer meeting? And they got under that haystack, and the power of God hit them, and a missions movement was begun. And I believe I have my facts straight. Out of that, a, a guy named Adrian Judson, first North American missionary, went to Burma to reach the Buddhists and was translating the Bible into their language and having no success at all. And a guy from a, a minority tribe came and started helping him translate, and he freaked out. I mean, they didn't use that word then. You know what I'm saying? He, he was amazed because he was a murderer from a tribe along the uh, Tibetan-Burmese-Chinese border from a little tribe known as, the, at the time, the Karen. We now call them the Karen. Anybody live in St. Paul? Heard of the Karen, right? There's a lot of Christians among the Karen, aren't there? He's why. This goes back four or five generations so this murderer, this, this Karin tribe had a traditional belief that, they had, that their ancestors had sacrificed the demons to find a way through the Khyber Pass so they were alienated from the one true God. They had a legend that one day a man with white skin and a black book would come and tell them how to get back to God. Well, they learned the gospel, and they didn't just get saved. They had an explosion, a spiritual explosion. They became apostles to that whole area. And there were, I don't remember how many, about 20 tribes that had resisted Buddhism for centuries because of similar folktales. And they wound up, there were large numbers of conversions of these minority peoples. Well, the Karin, now four-fifth generation later today, are still being persecuted by the majority Burmese and many have immigrated around the world because of that. That started with a prayer meeting of college students. So when I was uh, younger and had finished my math, physics, chemistry degree and concluded that I was supposed to go into campus ministry, not necessarily a logical straight line life direction, but anyway, uh, so there I was. And, uh, you know, kind of wondering, well, wow, with all these unreached people, do you know what an unreached people group is? This is somebody without the gospel in their, go their, their language and culture, okay? There's no living evangelizing church in their language and culture. And uh, so I was just thinking, not that I wanted to go somewhere, but I just said, Lord, what am I doing in campus ministry? 
when there's all these unreached people groups. And I did not have a voice from heaven, but this, the thing that I concluded as I was weighing that before the Lord was the reason is that what God wants to do on American campuses to mobilize people and prayer and finances to start another missions movement. So that is why I am still involved with students in campus ministry. That is why Sojourn Campus Church futzes with parking problems and a relatively small building and all the hassle of being surrounded by the university because we want to put our foot down and say, we're not going anywhere. So I've not so much been called as captured by a vision. I want you to be captured by a vision. Now, for students, some of you may be some of those future missionaries, or your friends may be, and you're going to, like some of my friends have, support them for the rest of their lives financially and in prayer. I've had people that have done that now for over 30 years. Uh, you see, as a family person, career, and you're like, well, you know, how does that fit me? We're asking you to be part of not just Sojourn, but the Church of Jesus Christ in Twin Cities to be part of bringing renewal to the church, strengthening what God is doing in these days. I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm actually going to address a little bit postmodernism today. We're going to look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. You can turn there. Don't turn there right away because uh, we're going to get there. Turn to chapters maybe 4 to get warmed up. And we're going to talk about truth and lies today. Truth or deception. Spiritual deception brings destruction and despair. Spiritual deception brings destruction and despair. Now, I know because it's snowing out, we don't have as many people here. And uh, maybe you're here because you can't make it to your church. I'm not sure. But anyway, here you are. And uh, I have been very burdened in general, in a good sense, by the book of Jeremiah. Its relevance is really just tearing my, my head and heart apart. Uh, I've roughly planned sermons for most of the rest of uh, through about June. And, and the relevance of Jeremiah is overwhelming and amazing. We started out last semester in Matthew talking about discipleship. We're still talking about it. But this is a crucial issue today. False versus genuine faith is crucial, not just for you as an individual, but it has a profound impact on the direction of a society and how it works and what happens. So as we look at the book of Jeremiah, it's a little less organized than Isaiah, if you've been here for an Isaiah series. Jeremiah chapters 1 to 10 is a general introduction to the whole book of Jeremiah, his message. And, and uh, so to get at the dangers of deception, I want you to recall a little bit where we've been so far with Jeremiah. On January 12th, we spoke about one particular deception, the deception of cheap grace, the need for genuine repentance. We need conversion, lament. We need to sow seeds of changed behavior. So Tim has led us beautifully in understanding the gospel already this morning just by the songs we've sung, and that's right. We thank God for that. But cheap grace confuses forgiveness and, and minimizes the need for transformation. We need genuine goodness worked out. I know it's a process. I know we're not you know, perfect. We are forgiven, hallelujah, along the way. But the transformation, changed people, is what makes life possible. 
right? If every person was as evil as they possibly could be, we couldn't have a society. So a quick overview of, Genesis, of Jeremiah 4 through 6 to give you some contextual idea for the teaching in Jeremiah 7. So I actually am going to ask you, open your Bible or get your phone ready, and I want you to page through with me just to see the teaching leading up to this so you see where it fits. And if you're the kind of person that would take a note, I would say grab a pencil and a paper because it will help you to kind of put this together. Uh, whoever edited Jeremiah, probably not Jeremiah himself, is giving us an idea what his main ideas are, what he's thinking about. So here they are. Uh, in chapter 4 then, we also shared on this a couple weeks ago, Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4, maybe look at that briefly. He talks about, uh, if you'll return, O Israel, return to me. And then he says in verse 3, this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and don't sow among thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, all right? So what he's saying is that, that you've got to break up. You've got hardened hearts. You're used to what's evil. So, so soften your heart. And when your heart is softened, you see a need for change. But they don't respond. They say no. So then we go into a mourning passage. Jeremiah mourns. God mourns. Jeremiah mourns again. The earth mourns. So there's even an ecological connection here way before the ecology movement, recognizing that when sin comes, it damages the land. And then Judah finally mourns their wrong choices, all in chapter 4. In other words, what is the point of mourning? We'll go into a whole section on the, on the laments of Jeremiah a little later in this series, in chapters 11 to 20. But uh, <clears throat> mourning, why does that happen? We've said before that God blesses obedience and curses disobedience. But guess what? None of us live in isolation. So when there is rampant sin in a society... Even people living for the Lord suffer. And so the godly lament what is happening, which is beyond their control, and even God laments what is happening. A hardened society continues to descend in greater and more chaotic sin. So those who love goodness mourn. So one of the big things that Jeremiah brings in the revelation, the big picture of the revelation of the Bible is that, yes, as we have said, God has deep compassion that loves, and he will judge evil, but he doesn't judge evil, a distant God of wrath that just says, well, this is what I've got to do, that when God must judge evil, it breaks his heart. The compassion of God over necessary judgments. He mourns the loss of relationship and goodness, and godly people mourn the loss of relationship to God and goodness as a society crumbles. God brings judgment with a heavy heart. Now, this is one of the perspectives that has been lost in postmodern society. When you have a group of people that has no clear moral purpose or not, not no recognition of a moral purpose in life, then what happens is, you know, the deity is either for me or against me. He's my tribal God or he's a devil. But Jeremiah teaches that God may be against me because he loves me. He may oppose things in my life out of grace and compassion and mercy. 
But that's out of the oversimplified mentality. So the major theological teaching in this section that sin and unfaithfulness destroy us and the earth, they violate God's purpose and produce mourning over the loss of goodness. So, so then the second question to ask you, the mourning is the first point. The second background issue is how can they be so dull? So look at chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, I read this one to you, I believe, last week. They have lied about the Lord. They said he'll do nothing. How can they be so dull to moral issues? Because they believe God will do nothing. Secondly, chapter 5, verse 25, they've got it worked out in their head. Uh, Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Uh, I'm struggling because I was working uh, directly in the Hebrew. So this is not quite the translation I expected. Sorry. Uh, so the point is that they fail to connect. Uh, maybe read verse 24. This might help. They do not say to themselves, let's fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Oh, there we go. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. In other words, your wrongdoings have kept the rains away. So here's the principle in verses 24 and 25. They have failed to connect sin and consequence, right? They've not connected that, oh, we've done this wrong, and this is why what is happening. The prophets, by the way, are frequently doing that. They're saying, look at your circumstance and recognize that you're the reason this is happening. In other words, the evil in our lives sometimes is because we have been disobedient to God. But then, one last passage as we set this up. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture, and that violates a lot of homiletic principles, so hopefully you'll live through this. Okay, but then we'll get down to an ordinary sermon. But I want you to see verses 13 and 14. I want you to see that, again, they believe God will do nothing. They're not con- connecting sin and consequences, but why? Look at verse 13. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. What kind of deceit? What do they mean? What kind of deceit? The next verse explains. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say when there's no peace. They were looking at paganism, sexual immorality, cheating the poor, and they were saying, it'll be all right. When leadership addresses serious evil and superficially that deceives because it's telling people it's not a big deal. It'll be okay. We just need a change in the economy. (laughs) That's where we are. How can they be so deceived? Verse 16 explains it. This is what the Lord says. He means he's being metaphorical. Stand at the crossroads and look, the crossroads of life. He said, go, go to the ways, the crossroads, stop and look and ask, inquire the ancient paths or the forever paths, right? Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Sounds like Jesus. But you said, we're not going to do it. So do you hear the heart cry of God? He's saying, look at where your society's going. And recognize the choice, the two ways, and then 
Seek for the good way. Speaking to someone recently, they're not part of this church. I don't think they're very close to God. And, you know, I was just saying, when you talk about what makes, this is a male-female issue, right? When, when you talk about what makes a, a, a marriage work, I quoted the scripture. I said, you can go back to, you know, the last 20,000 years, human beings have figured out that this is, there's one way to make sexuality work, male and female in covenant, right? It's like, this is how it works. It's an ancient way, yes. It's, it's, it's so clear, but they didn't want to look at it. So then, that's the context for Jeremiah 7, which is called the Temple Sermon, because early in Jeremiah's ministry, God leads him to preach this sermon outside the temple. So we'll look at chapter 7 today, crucial piece of theology. But as we do, notice that just as they refused to look at where they were going so many in our society refuse to look at the deep roots of where we're going. You know, we could look at Europe and see where we'd be in 20 years. We don't want to look at that. We want to deny what's happening. Even Christians want to find a superficial answer, make sure they've got their happy little life in 401k and ignore it all, but God's not going to let us do that. The temple sermon teaches that false faith deceives us Theologically foundational, it is a contrast between superstition and obedience. Let's read Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. See what's going on? Superstition. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you still steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bear my, bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Let's pray. So Father, open our minds and our hearts to grasp your heart in these days, to think carefully, to really grasp in our minds what you are trying to do, what you're trying to make clear, that we could stand faithfully in these days and hold out hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we need genuine faith. That's what he's saying. Why do we need genuine faith? Several reasons we need genuine faith. First of all, because false faith deceives. Now, verse four, he's mocking them, right? Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, 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 right? It's my little talisman. They think, a little background here, they think that God promised David a kingdom that would last forever. It's their Old Testament version of eternal security. 
They thought that if they kept the worship rituals, all would be well. And as long as they had the temple, all would be well. Notice their faith was in a ritual, a sacrifice, and a building. Not in the Lord. Verse 8, false words. Verse 9, stealing, killing, and adultery. Sacrificing to Baal, literally or maybe sacrifice to Yahweh, but with no integrity, so it's like a sacrifice to Baal. But then verse 10, the sobering verse. Then they come before God and believe they are safe to do evil. Now, Christian believer, I want you to think carefully about this. The cross of Jesus Christ is an eternal sign of mercy and grace. And humble, broken, contrite hearts will always be forgiven. But God's grace is not to cover calculated evil. Do you see the difference? Well, it doesn't matter how I live because I know God will forgive. I can do whatever I want. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Only we'd say the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. He's saying it's not magic. It's relationship. And you cannot let your heart get to the place where you are excusing premeditated evil and think you're okay. When you find yourself in that place, you say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. But don't, don't use grace as a cover for sin. And that's the point of verse 11, which we often quote without understanding. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? What he's saying is, when you use grace as a cover for sin, it made, it, it made the temple a place where robbers can hide out from their consequences of sin. Don't make grace a place to hide out. Make it a place to be forgiven and transformed. You could glance at Verses 12 to 15, I won't read them, but he basically reminds them, if you think I won't destroy the temple, go back and look at Shiloh. That's where the first tabernacle was, and God destroyed that. He's trying to break not their sense of God's covenant, but their sense of if we just have our, our hope in this temple, we'll be okay. Now, this is a very relevant modern issue. Faith is a relationship with Christ. It is never faith in faith. You see the difference? It's never a, you know, I would just trust and I can have this ritual, this way of doing my Christian life and nothing bad will happen. Then later in verses 16 to 19, he actually says, maybe we should read this a little bit. Uh, 16 to 19, but look at verse 16 says, don't pray for this people. Oh my gosh, why not? Verse 18 their children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They're talking about astrology there. And what he's saying is, don't pray for people who are trusting in astrology or other gods. They're harming themselves, bringing shame. But don't pray for them because they'll be confused about who's doing what. And so God says, for a season, don't pray for them till they see the folly of these false gods. False faith deceives, so God backs off and lets us see the emptiness of faith in false gods. Well, God does the same thing today. How do we do this? So I want to say this firmly, gently, and as clearly as I can. 
We must trust in God, not our prayers. We must trust in God, not how we live the Christian life. Every approach to prayer that claims to guarantee results, every approach to devotions or obedience that thinks that we can direct life, we can direct results, we can direct history, all our trust in method and technique and mental attitude is just being just like the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's a superstition. Our trust is in Christ alone. It's a relationship of trust. Yes, we pray. Yes, we do devotions. But we do not trust in our technique, our obedience, our way of praying, how we command this or that. We don't trust in that. We trust in Christ. It's never magic, okay? It's not Christian magic. It's my relationship to God. And the amazing thing about answered prayer, which I have seen, let me tell you, is that there is a holy, transcendent, but amazingly present God who answers prayer, who answers humble prayers for things that I can't change, and he changes them. That's faith in Christ. So trust in him alone. Anything else is a subtle paganism. So the first reason we need genuine faith is false faith deceives. Another reason we need genuine faith, and this is the one where I'm going to ask you to turn on your brains. Jeremiah, I was shocked at this. He basically teaches that false faith leads to nihilism. I know it's ahead of his time. <laughs> Look at verse 23 of chapter 7. He says, uh, but I gave them this command, obey me and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Walk in the ways that I command you that it may go well with you. So notice, first of all, in verse 23, keep your finger there, but in verse 23, that obedience is tied to both relationship again, catch that? It's the same as the last point. Obedience is tied to relationship and actually obedience is tied to human flourishing. It will go well with you. Right? God is wanting our lives to go well. And so the commands of God are for the sake of human flourishing. All right, but then verse 24, but they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of the evil hearts and they went backward. Sin sends us backward. Now for postmodernism. Verses 27 and 28. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It's vanished from the earth. I've been struck with horror at that verse this week. This is a critical point in any society they resisted the God of truth to the point that truth functionally perished in their society. When so many people choose self-deception, truth is no longer perceivable. Are we there yet? I think we're there. Welcome to the 21st century. You can read chapter 7, verse 31 if you like. It gets worse. They have built high places 
of Topeth in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind, child sacrifice. They did this because they wanted a desperate emergency. Usually they wanted the gods to do something for them. It was a willingness to sacrifice children to their own need for survival or pleasure. And again, are we there? We are. So society, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but why do we have societies? Why does God allow societies? Well, there might be a lot of reasons, but there's at least one reason. <laughs> it's to raise the next generation. So when that is lost, society is at a critical point. So our final verse, well, for the moment, <laughs> chapter 8, verse 3, it's the same sermon. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, says the Lord Almighty. Nihilism. Nihilistic despair, no hope. Death preferred over life. I don't know if you, some of you remember Sean Gallion last year speaking here. And if you remember the story, I should do. He told this story uh, as he was beginning to ministry in Spain and really countering, encountering truly postmodern people. Uh, he shared the gospel as we often do. said, you know, you believe in Jesus, you can have everlasting life. And this woman looked at him and said, why would I want that? Right? She's already filled with ennui, you know, kind of despair. She's living, most Europeans feel like they're already living as, in a material sense, as good as it gets. And if that's all there is, uh, Phil Zarns, another European missionary, was sharing a couple weeks ago. He said, in, in Northern European society, it's, it's polite to say, how you doing? Oh, yeah, doing good. And then, well, who's your, who's your, who's your therapist? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, depression is just absolutely rife through the society. We're getting there, aren't we? Nihilistic despair. So let me tell you how I synthesize this, the crumbling of superficial faith. If I believe I have a guarantee against all suffering and evil, no, we don't, but let's say I look at the Christian life, I think, I think I've got a guarantee against all, if I just believe enough, pray enough, trust God enough, memorize enough scripture, if I believe I have a guarantee against all suffering and evil, then I have the dealing of God in my life, something falls apart, life in a fallen world, then my fragile faith collapses into despair. No hope. So my friends, many around us are there right now, whether they're Christians or not. This is why superficial faith is so dangerous. But what do we have? A hope in Christ. A solid hope in Christ that is deeper than this life that goes farther than my personal peace, comfort, and prosperity. So a second reason we need genuine faith is that false faith leads to, leads to nihilism. One final reason we need genuine faith, true faith leads to the kingdom. Now just look back at chapter 7, 5 through 7, and uh, think about what verses 5 through 7 describe. This is pretty cool. Change your ways, deal with each other justly, Okay, nice. Don't oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood. Don't follow other gods. Then I'll let you live in this land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. Here's the gospel of the kingdom in its early form in three verses. Love your neighbor, love God, and then you'll be in God's kingdom forever and ever. 
Now, I know he's not talking about heaven. He's, there's a little bit of salvation history we have to go through here yet, right? He's thinking of their restoration in history and not necessarily eternal bliss, but he's really expressing the ultimate vision that God is building, which culminates in what we would call heaven. That simple, beautiful picture, love for God, love for one another in harmony forever. That's the goal of the kingdom of God. That's the goal. Love God and one another. If you hadn't heard, this is our message, right? It's not just that I'll be with God someday in heaven. I mean, yes, but really, the Bible actually teaches he's going to renew the earth, right? So actually, maybe I'll be here. I don't know. You know, maybe I'll be in Zimbabwe. You know, I don't know where I'll be. But anyway, you know, it'll be, it'll be renewed, you know, all right? But the point being that it's, it, heaven's not a, a place. Heaven is a state of existence where we love God, we love one another, and we live forever, which we don't know, of course, right? And so when we're building the kingdom now, we think, well, you know, it's all going to burn. Well, the material stuff is, but guess what? Love for God, love for people doesn't burn. Every act of love is eternal. Did you know that? Do you know that everything you do in love, even if it's rejected by the other, it's never lost in the kingdom of God. It's the most God-like thing we do. And so right now, when we love God with all of our heart, Tim and the others are leading us, and we're, we're you know, I know it's like, we're trying to get our hearts focused again and recentered, and, you know, at first it's scrambling all over, but then, yes, oh, hallelujah, I do love you, Lord. That renewal, that's an eternal act. When you are loving that friend, neighbor, or child, whether it's easy or hard that day, <laughs> that's an eternal act. It's a part of the kingdom that will never be lost. So what's the call? Love God and one another. This is our hope, our message, our great calling is to spread the message of God's good grace. Jesus says, little children, your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. And that's why in John's gospel, he expresses the kingdom with a different phrase, eternal life. But he doesn't talk about eternal life like someday. He says, when you believe, you are already entered into a life eternal. You're already living in the beginning of an eternal life, an eternal existence that will never end. Powerful. Love God, love your companions, and live in joy forever. So the final reason we need genuine faith is that true faith leads to the kingdom. So we need genuine faith because false faith deceives, false, false faith destroys, and true faith leads to the kingdom. So a couple, maybe, no, I want to say minor, but a couple applications, but then the really big point, okay? Certainly ask God to examine your heart and get rid of idols. Do it. Put your whole trust in God, of course. And of course, share the news of the kingdom. But I hope something deeper is going on this morning. False, superficial faith in modern day idols are all around us. And Jeremiah is teaching us that when people put their faith in these things and these things fail them, despair is the result. That's why you're seeing people like that all around you. In a sense, this morning is more of simply a teaching. I want you to get a mentality and recognize what's going on around you. Despair is the result. 
And when faith fails, despair, nihilism, the dark gods of blood and soil arise, addictions increase, truth fails, resulting in all kinds of confusions, gender confusions, sexual identity confusions, uh, radical serial relationships, one after another, after another, after another, resulting in broken human spirits. Utter relativism and confusion just prevails. So do you see it? You may feel like you're still recovering from some of that stuff, but we have the hope, the peace, the joy, the answer for the human soul. I know sometimes you feel like, oh my gosh, people aren't that open. I think if you recognize the real diseases that the people are experiencing and can share compassionately how Jesus has helped you with the despair, with the meaninglessness, with the, with the gender confusion, whatever your story is, that people are hungry for that. If we can be authentic enough and perceptive enough to recognize where the gospels encountered us and with compassion break through the brokenness and despair with the love of Christ, I do believe there is yet an awakening for this campus, this city, this nation, this world. Stand with me. Um, so what I hope is happening this morning, if you need prayer for needs in your own life, get prayer, absolutely. But what I hope is happening for many of you is your soul is being stirred to recognize where the people around you are at and that God's giving compassion and some thinking, some intelligence to begin to reflect how can I really encounter the people around me? So let's pray. And feel free to join Sita or come for any kind of prayer. Uh, maybe a Keith Lacus will get up here too just to have... No, he can't. Okay. Okay, never mind. Okay, yep. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. So Jesus, we come to you. We are so grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. There's not only forgiveness, but there is meaning and purpose in the new life in Christ there's a reason to swim against the tides of culture. There is a hope that is deeper than any despair. So, Father, I ask that you would be working in our souls not only to transform us and keep, keep up your good work that you're doing. We're so thankful, Lord, that every day you work in our souls. But, Father... Help us to see that people are like sheep with no, no leadership, no shepherd. They're just following the streams of culture. They're being wounded and damaged. And Father, increase our compassion for friends in need. Just bow our heads a moment. If you're being burdened for a friend in need right now, just raise your hand. I'm going to pray right where you are. God's giving you a burden for people in need. Just lift your hand to the Lord. He's going to minister. He's going to give you power. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would pour out by your spirit. You would give us your wisdom, your grace, your glory to do your will and your work, oh God, as we deal with the pandemic of sin, first of all. 
pray that you would make us worthy ministers, truth speakers, but truth in love with the gospel, with the hope, with the joy that there is in Jesus Christ. Pour out, we ask. Hallelujah, Father. In Jesus' name. Father, we pray as well for this coronavirus and we have, uh, I know we have personal friends that have relatives in Hunan and uh, George and others probably may know people as well. We pray in Jesus' name that you would just give uh, humility to the Chinese government and you give medical skill all around, all around the world now, uh, Europe and Asia, United States, there are cases we pray for healing. We pray that the, the issue with saline, whatever uh, wise ideas you may be giving people to help prevent spread, we ask you would just bless that and contain this uh, terrible scourge, we pray. In Jesus' name. Father, now we pray blessing. May your grace and peace rest on each one in this room, this fellowship of people. Pour out your spirit upon each one. Help us to know you more deeply, to know your word, to love you, to be free in grace, filled with love, compassion for those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.